we're going to start a new series of messages today called What, Why, and How. And the heart behind this series is that all of us are asking big God questions. We all have big God questions, and we, we ask them of God, we talk about them together. And so this series is out of that heart of you know, finding some of the answers that we can from God's word about some of the big questions that you and I, that you and I all have. And as an introduction <clears throat> to that series this morning, I'd like to dig down a little bit deeper and start with a question before we actually get to some answers to big questions, and that is, why do we ask questions? There's an interesting why behind why we ask questions, and that is, why do we ask questions? Like, why aren't we just simply content with living on a beautiful planet with beautiful people? Why do we have questions? Why, what, or, or what compels us to ask questions? There's something in us that for one reason or another compels us to ask questions. And then, how do we have the ability to ask questions? There's something interesting in humanity that you and I are the ones that have the ability to ask questions because as we look around our world, we don't see anything else asking questions. Only we do. Humans are the ones that ask questions and the very fact that we ask questions may be proof, I would say probably is proof, that we're not just merely tissue or further along in the evolutionary time period but that you and I have a higher cognitive ability that is not there by random chance, but it is given to us by an intelligent designer who is okay with you and I having questions about him and life and purpose. I think it's important, and I would say even essential for us as Christians, in particular people that have faith in God, to ask questions. Because questions are important. We need to be comfortable with asking questions. We need to be comfortable with letting people ask us questions. We need to be comfortable with questions about God, with questions about life, with questions about our Christian faith. We need to be comfortable with people that don't agree, that are skeptical, that are questioning and I think all of this is important because, number one, we all have questions, but number two, because God has answers, and the Bible has answers. To our deepest questions, God is there, and he wants to give us answers. Now, I've probably noticed, like you do, that most of us have two, maybe three stages in our life where we ask lots of questions. It's just a byproduct of a stage of life. The first one happens in age two to four, right? We all, all of us that have been parents, we're laughing right now. And why are we laughing? Why? Why are we laughing? Why? That's right. Why? Because two to four, we've all been there, right? Our, the only thing our child asks is, why? Why, Daddy? Why is the brown white? Why is the wall white? You know, why is that keyboard on the stage? Why is the sky blue? You know, why do you root for the 49ers? All these different things. 
It's true. And, and it's because they're curious, right? That child is curious about everything, about everything about you, everything about life, everything about the world. They're just curious about everything, and they're searching for security. And as you answer their simple questions and don't get frustrated by all of their why questions, even though they've asked you 150 this hour, it's part of their security. It's part of their curiosity. It's part of them connecting to you as you ask questions. And the same thing happens with us and God. As we continue to go to him with questions, go to our father with questions and receive answers, it connects us in relationship. Now, the second stage is that stage, oh, around 17 to 25, where we're heading into life. And now the questions are a little bit more serious than they were when we were three. Because now I'm trying to discover my purpose. I'm trying to discover what life's all about. I'm trying to discover, is life worth living for the rest of it when I'm 22, right? That's what I'm trying to discover. Before I hit pre-life crisis, I need some questions answered. And so I have all these questions. And then the third stage can sometimes happen to some of us, sometimes Some of us will have a third stage in the middle of our life, and we often refer to it as a midlife crisis, where once again, we ask all those questions that we asked when we were 22 all over again. Maybe we're an empty nester, we're coming into that season, and we begin to ask all those questions, and we begin to wonder, would a convertible help me? right? Would a motorcycle answer all of my questions? Uh, Motorcycle, yes. See, we ask questions, don't we? But why? Let's dig down. Why do we ask questions? Here's the first thing I want to talk about when we talk about asking questions and why. I think our questions reveal a void. Our questions reveal a natural void that is inside of us. Now, by the way, that void is there because we chose the knowledge of good and evil instead of life. That's why the void's there. Okay, let's acknowledge that. That the void is there because we chose to do stuff on our own instead of living in the perfect presence and creation of God and always eating from the tree of life. So now we have this void. Now that doesn't mean God can't work. It just means that's reality, okay? The void is there because we don't know the answer. So there's just a natural void. And the void continues when we don't know the answer to some of our deepest needs and our deepest things. And so we begin to ask things like, what is my purpose? Why am I alive? How did I get here? And we have tons of questions. This void in all of us, in some way or another, needs to get filled. But where are we going to go for those answers? Naturalism? Humanism? Science? Government, naturally, would want to be the answer to all those. Philosophy? Now, some of those things can give us answers, but some of them will leave us with that continual void. Now, wouldn't it be just helpful if there was some sort of absolute truth 
that we could build our lives on and find all of our answers? That'd be awesome. Which leads us to John 8. Sorry, I said Luke, didn't I? And I meant John. So turn to John 8. In John 8, Jesus said something profound about this challenge that you and I are in. In John 8, verse 31 and 32, it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Very simple statement. But here's what Jesus said. That in relationship with him, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now there's two things that are said there that kind of help us with the void, that help us with why we ask questions. But here's what Jesus said. In me, in relationship with me, you will have the ability to know the truth. And as you're in relationship with me and you begin to know the truth, here's what you'll discover. Freedom. You'll discover more and more freedom in relationship with God. Because your questions will get answered because you know the one who holds all truth, who knows all truth, who is truth. Now Jesus said, this will set you free. It won't bind you up. It'll set you free. I've discovered that full submission to Jesus helps us discover that truth that we need. It helps us discover the answers to our most challenging questions. And submitting to Jesus and his word leads to a deep commitment and a deep contentment, a very deep contentment. Now, the contentment doesn't mean I don't have questions anymore. It just means I'm okay with the answers. And we'll get to that in a, a little bit later. But contentment doesn't mean I don't have questions. It just means I'm okay with the answers because the truth giver is giving them to me. By the way, this is why the Bible is so important to our faith. This is why this book is the most important book in all of human history. This is why Jesus said and God said, these words will never pass away. Even when we get to heaven, these will still be God's words. They'll still be his promises to us. And his, because his word is enduring. Whenever God says anything, it never returns void. It's always there because it is truth. And so it is always with us eternally. And God's word also reveals to us the plan of God for mankind. It reveals the heart of God. And it reveals this unhindered relationship that God wants to have with us. That's why his word is so important. But let me give you four reasons why God's word is essential for our lives when we think about why we ask questions. Four things that are super important. The first, it gives us a moral framework. That's what God's word does. It gives us a moral framework, guardrails on the road of life, right? And I think we can all recognize that we definitely need guardrails because when you take the guardrails off, what happens? You just drive off a cliff. And I think we've 
we can see some of that even happening today culturally. Two, it tells us about the meaning of life. All of us need to understand purpose, need to understand meaning, need to understand direction, specific and general. We need to understand what God has for us. And the Bible tells us about the meaning of life. Third, it, it reveals hope for mankind. We all need hope for today, for tomorrow, and the Bible gives us that. It reveals that, it tells us about that hope, and it communicates that hope for all mankind. And then fourthly, it empowers us to love supremely. See, these are the deep things that you and I often have questions about. In fact, every, almost every question we could probably put under one of these points somewhere. And you and I need to definitely understand what it means to love supremely, as Jesus said, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. This is why God has preserved his word through the centuries. This is why God's word is still in a very, very true form. It has not changed. It has not been manipulated. It, is, it has not been uh, done away with, and why it's still here with you and I today. Now, often, because we're talking about questions, a lot of times you'll hear different questions about the Bible, and two, two questions I've been hearing a lot lately I want to address specifically. Two reasons that lots of people give for why they don't believe the Bible. The first one is, I can't trust God's word historically, and the second one is, I can't trust God's word culturally. The first one, uh, I can't trust God's word historically. I, I'm not sure if this book is an authentic book and if it is really um, written by the people that it was written by and that it can be proven historically. Now, first of all, we need to know that there's all kinds of historical documents that we believe. That if you go to history class, you study all kinds of historical documents. Homer's Iliad, things by Plato, things by Aristotle, all these people that um, were alive, were real people, and wrote things down on paper, and nobody disputes them, do they? Do you ever hear anybody, anytime ever, in a history class, debating whether what Aristotle said came true? Do you ever have anybody stating anywhere, I'd like, I'd like a piece of material outside of Aristotle's writings to prove that Aristotle was alive and that he wrote down, was wrote down, before I take that test and you give me an F? No, we never ask that question, do we? What's the only piece of material we ever ask a question about? This one. Why? Because it's the truth, and Satan knows it. That's the only reason this book is questioned. Because Satan knows it's the truth and he doesn't want you and I to believe it. But historically, you and I, in the Bible, you will find as you read it over and over again, there are references to cities, lakes, rivers, mountains, people. And here's what's interesting. Every single city, lake, river, mountain can all be attested for. In fact, you can go look at all of them today. Well, minus Sodom and Gomorrah. It might be at the bottom of the Dead Sea. That's maybe why it's so salty. Who knows? 
But here's what's interesting. You can find all of them. You can find all of them on the planet. They write, you can go and stand right in front of them and say, oh, that's that lake. That's that river. There's that mountain. Historical proof. And then, while we can't prove every single person in the Bible, we can prove several people, lots of people actually, that would have had reason, like a king or a prophet or someone important in society, that would have been mentioned or named in some sort of historical writing outside of the Bible. Guess what we find all over the Middle East as we do archaeological digs and we find historical writings? We find the people in the Bible mentioned. We find leaders in Egypt mentioned. We find leaders in Israel mentioned. We find leaders in Assyria mentioned. We find leaders in Babylon mentioned. We find all of those things mentioned. We find New New Testament people mentioned, all proving that the Bible is historically accurate in its form. But some people will say, I can't trust the Bible culturally. You know, there's just a lot of things in the Bible that are just, they're archaic. And they don't make any sense to us today culturally. And so I, I just can't trust the Bible culturally. And there's a, there's a valid understanding to that. I think we can all understand that a document written 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, how we would tend to think this maybe doesn't relate to us today. But just because something is old doesn't mean it's not relatable, okay? Doesn't mean it it isn't valuable culturally. Like today, would it be perfectly fine for you and I to drive a Model T car? Absolutely. But would it be much easier for me to drive a new Chevy Silverado? Absolutely. But it doesn't make the Model T culturally irrelevant. It's just different. Even though our culture is very different today, it doesn't make things irrelevant or invalid, for that matter. In fact, as we sit here today, in 2020, in the United States, and we say the Bible is culturally irrelevant today, then we are assuming two interesting things. Here's the two things we're assuming. Number one, we're assuming that in 2020, we have arrived culturally. (laughs) That there is nothing that could be added or taken away from us right now today in 2020 because we are the perfect culture. (laughs) Need, Need I say more? Right? That's what we're assuming. Second, we're assuming this. That as in America, that America is the perfect culture. That no other culture has anything valid or helpful to add to life, but that only the American culture, or maybe you're making that comment as a Chinese person, only the Chinese culture, or only the Peruvian culture, or only the Australian culture. Okay? Now, could I, could I say that both of those assumptions are fairly arrogant and I would say extremely narrow-minded. Yet, so often, what are we told as Christians? We're the narrow-minded ones. Yet I will say the Bible is culturally relevant and I would say that's fairly narrow-minded to say that you know everything and that nothing that is old 
And by the way, nothing that is new that is coming could help me in any way. Would you want people in 2040 to say, what you did in 2020 couldn't value anybody in the world, ever? No, that doesn't make sense. See, when we take time to investigate the Bible, and you read it through cover to cover, here's what you will find. In the Bible, it talks about things like relationships of all kinds. How to live while you're at work. Science. How a person can find purpose. How the world began and how life is sustained. What to do with your enemy. Bible talks about morality and ethics. Bible talks a lot about finances. It talks about forgiveness and eternity, love, joy, hope, and peace. I agree. All of those things are culturally irrelevant. None of us talk about those things anymore at all. We talk about totally different things. See, that's nonsense. The Bible's full of all of the things that we're still talking about today and we'll always talk about because it's the human condition. That's what the Bible talks about, the human condition. And that will never change. Questions can often lead to doubt. Questions can often lead us to to doubting things. And I want to talk also about something really important about doubt and questions. And here's what I'd like to say. That having doubt that leads to questions doesn't frighten God. It doesn't scare God. God doesn't get alarmed or go into a panic because you've doubted him or because you've doubted something in his word or because you've doubted something about life. But doubt can sometimes, especially I think in Christian circles, doubt can sometimes sound like a dirty word, can it? Like maybe doubt means you don't have as much faith as you should. Okay, Anybody in the room not, as have, not have as much faith as they should at one point in their life? Duh. We call that life. That's reality. That's what being a Christian's all about. We all have doubts. It's part of being human. But when our doubts are properly responded to, and we go through a great questioning process and talk to God about it, it'll lead us to truth. See, doubts will often lead us to find answers to deep questions. If you ask any skeptic or cynic or atheist how they came to Christ, they will tell you, well, I had a ton of doubts. And I just started answering those questions and realized, God's not scared of that. And he's answering all my questions. Now, here's what is interesting. God's not scared of our doubt because he knows that it will lead us to truth. And truth always leads to him. So God's not scared of our doubt. In fact, we see people with doubt in the Bible often. Let me give you a pretty, two actually pretty interesting examples of this. The first, John the Baptist. Now check this out with me for a minute. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. 
This is incredible. He baptizes Jesus and the Spirit of God descends upon him. At one point in John's ministry, John is baptizing people. Jesus is walking to the lake, to the Jordan River, and he publicly declares in front of everybody, hey, there he is. That's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. So here he has baptized Jesus. Here he is verbally declaring who Jesus is. Yet in Luke chapter 7, verse 20, here's the one in Luke. <laughs> in Luke chapter 7, verse 20, it says this. When the men came to Jesus, they asked, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What? The guy who baptized Jesus, who declared that he was the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world, is now asking, are you the one? He's doubting Jesus. Now, why is he doubting Jesus? He's been in prison for a while and life stinks. And so he's doubting again. And how often does that happen, that when life really stinks for us, we start to doubt all over again, don't we? But here's John the Baptist, doubting. Verse 21 says, At that very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. John had doubts, and Jesus answered them. The oldest book in the Bible is Job, and the entire book is about questions. The entire book is about Job asking questions to God and God asking questions to Job and then them having a short dialogue about all their questions at the end of the book. That's what the book's about. Now, once again, Job is having questions because he's in a tough spot. All of his children have died in a natural disaster. All of his property has been destroyed and the only thing God leaves him is a nagging wife who continues to tell him to curse God and die. And so Job sits down in sackcloth and ashes with three of his friends, and they begin to ask big God questions. Listen to their questions. Chapter 4. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Chapter 8. Does God pervert justice? The justice question. Big one. Chapter 14. If someone dies, will they live again? Chapter 21. Why do the wicked live on, growing old, and increasing in power? The question of evil in the world. Chapter 28. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Where should I find the answers to these things? They ask tons of questions that you and I, I mean, this book could literally be 5,000 years old. They're asking the exact same questions we're asking today. And here was God's answer. Now, this isn't always the way God answers. Part of the reason God answered Job this way because Job was going about things a little arrogantly. But here's God's answers to Job. Chapter 38 and chapter 39. Chapter 38. 
Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Do you know the laws of heaven? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? And tons of questions God asks Job. And in chapter 40, Job answered the Lord in verse 4, and he said this, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Now, Job was humbled by the truth, the truth that God is God and we are not. And it changed his worldview. It changed his thinking. It changed how he asks questions. Now, here's what's interesting. Job didn't actually stop talking. The rest of the book is God and Job having a conversation. It's just an exaggeration. The Bible often has verses in, that, in it that are exaggeration verses that help us understand. So Job didn't actually cover his mouth for the rest of his life and stop talking. He actually continued this great dialogue with God, but he continues the dialogue, he continues the questions, he continues to listen to answers from a different place, a place of humility. Here's what I've discovered as we wind things down here. The challenge with questions doesn't lie in the question. It lies in the answer. Right? I mean, none of us have problems with the questions. We only have problems with the answer. And that's where you and I have to work out what we're going to work out. What's our worldview going to be? What are we going to think? What are we going to believe? It's based on the answer, not on the question. And that's where we have to remember. God is God and we are not. He's the creator and we're the created. He's the potter and we are the clay. Yet so often we respond with, God, I don't like your answer. I don't like your answer about evil in the world. I don't like your answer about sexuality. I don't like your answer about money. I don't like your answer about morality and ethics. And so we say and we think, I know better than you do, God. That's a problem with the answer, not with the question. So keep asking questions and let God answer them. Let me close with one last important thought about questions that I think is really important. And that is that questions don't need answers. People need answers. Can I remind you, questions are just questions. They're just words on a page. People need answers. You and I have people all around us that need answers to questions. And in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Walk in the wisdom of God, as you live before the unbelievers and make it your duty to make him known. Let every word you speak be drenched with grace and tempered with truth and clarity. For then you will be prepared to give a respectful answer 
to anyone who asks about your faith. See, people have questions. People need answers. And it's up to you and I to be respectful and loving and kind and patient and answer as many questions as we need so that people can come to the truth of Jesus. Why do we ask questions? Because people are longing for these things. Morality, meaning, hope, and love. And we find the essential things that we need in our life in relationship with God who created us and loved us. I heard something really interesting recently. It was a quote by Justice Scalia, of all people. We, we wouldn't agree, maybe, with most of the things he would say or did, but he was a brilliant man. And he said this at the end of his life, which may tell us a little bit about maybe where his heart was at. But he said this at the end of his life. Sophisticated thinkers can believe in God. Sophisticated thinkers can believe in a personal God. Sophisticated thinkers can believe in the person of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Mm. This is why questions are important. Because our sophisticated questions will lead us to a personal God who loves us very much. Would you pray with me?